Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, last week we looked at the serpent in the garden. We looked at how the serpent really is Satan. Uh, we, we saw that in Revelation 12, 9 and in Revelation 20, verse 2. How the, the serpent of old is described as Satan or the devil. We also looked at the fact that Satan in the Bible uh, takes two forms. Definitely as a serpent, but he takes two forms. Sometimes as a deceiving serpent or as an attacking and devouring dragon. We saw some of his tactics last week of how he operates in this world. And then we also looked at how he became such an evil being. He was, as we saw in Ezekiel 28 and in Isaiah, uh, he was a created angel. In fact, he was the anointed cherub of God who was full of wisdom and splendor and uh, just, a, a, just a brilliant being that God had made. And yet because of iniquity within himself, because of pride within himself, not because of anything on the outside, he rebels against God because he desires to take the place of God and be like God. And so God um, kicks him out of heaven, so to speak. And then we also looked at the fact that while we, when we think of that original sin that happened with Satan, while there was nothing on the outside, it was something that was within Satan himself. And that's all we know. We don't know why that came about within himself, but we know that something within himself, this pride welled up, this unrighteousness welled up. We must keep in balance the fact that God was still sovereign over all of this. That this was not a surprise for God, where God was like, oh, my creature is rebelling, now I've got to do something. No, we we know that because as we looked at in Revelation, where it says that God's plan has always been to slay his son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And if the plan has always been before the foundation of the world, before anything was created to slay his son, we can also then say sin was also part of God's plan. Now God is not evil. He does not tempt anyone. Uh, There's nothing about him that is evil, but evil is still part of God's sovereign plan and he allowed it. And so even when we think today, as we begin to see the scene with the serpent and Eve, we need to keep that in mind. What is taking place now in the garden is not an accident. Or should I say, it is not taking God by surprise. But ultimately, this was all part of God's sovereign plan. Even though God is not evil, he does not tempt anyone to do this, it was still part of his plan. This morning we're going to look at the deception of the serpent in the garden. And we, as we look at how Satan 
acts in the garden to deceive the woman and ultimately cause the fall of Adam and Eve, what, you know, you say, okay, why do we need to understand this? And I would say it's because of this. Because Satan's tactics, this, what he used in the garden, is essentially the same thing that he uses over and over and over and over again. And so we need to understand how he acts so that you know, when we are tempted, we are more prepared and we know what it is that Satan is doing and we're able to resist him. This morning we're going to look at the deception of Satan under two headings. Firstly, uh, his doubting God and his word. And secondly, uh, his rejecting God and his word. So let's first look at uh, his first tactic, first deception. Doubting God and his word. Let's read verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. You know, what's interesting is, so even here in the garden, if you remember, you know, contextually, everything so far is perfect and pristine. It is a perfect world, a beautiful world. Everything is in harmony. Everything is good. God looks at it and even says it is very good. And everything is enjoying the blessing of God and enjoying God in that eternal rest that all of creation was meant to be. And suddenly this new character appears out of nowhere. Now because of last week we know what has happened and we know that this is Satan. He has possessed this serpent and is going to talk through this serpent. But you know, what I find interesting, even as Satan starts his, his work in this world, even right at the start, you see how he disguises himself. I mean, he doesn't come into the garden and he doesn't say, hey, look at me, I'm the fallen angel. I rebelled against God and I'm, now I'm thoroughly evil through and through and I'm here to deceive you. No, he doesn't say that. He just comes as this, this serpent, this animal that uh, you know, was there in the garden and he possesses this serpent. And even nowadays, you know, when you think about it, his tactic is still the same. You know, Error or evil never comes, Satan and his minions, it never comes as, oh, this is evil, this is evil. As the Bible says, he comes as an angel of light, you know, with half-truths and sometimes, you know, masquerading itself to be such a good thing that we need to have. And yet, that is always Satan's ploy. Now, verse 1 particularly says, the serpent was more crafty. This word crafty, it has the idea of being cunning or shrewd. Now, someone can be shrewd in a good way or a bad, bad way. It, it's not a bad term in itself. It really depends on the person. A person can be shrewd and use it for doing something bad. A person can be shrewd and do something good. And what's interesting here is this word shrewd. And 
there's, a, there's really a word play with this word shrewd. There's a word play between Genesis 3.1 and Genesis 2.25, which is the end of chapter 2. Remember in Genesis 2.25, you know, we see there it's written, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we saw what it meant to be uh, over there, that, that term naked. It didn't just mean that they were physically naked, but it also has the idea of innocence, that they had nothing to hide, that they had nothing to cover. They were innocent. You know, everything was transparent, and therefore they were vulnerable. And the word for naked in the Hebrew is arumim, which is uh, plural because there was Adam and Eve. But you know what the word for crafty or shrewd is? It's exactly the same word, arum. Arum in singular in 3.1 and Genesis 2.25, arumim. It's the same word but having two different meanings. Kind of like in the English, you know, you can think of many words like that. Uh, let's take, for example, a word like bat. When somebody says bat, you can think of this instrument that you use to uh, hit a ball, or you can think of an animal that flies around in the night. Uh, you know, they're, they're both bats. Same word, but two different meanings. And so similarly, this word arum, it, it can mean two things. It can mean naked, or uh, meaning innocent, or it can also mean crafty or shrewd. And the author, by using the same word, the, the, you know, making this play on words, it's meant to jump out to the readers as you finish Genesis chapter 2. You know, it's meant to jump out at you. Okay, Adam and Eve, Arumim, you know, flashing light. Okay, they were innocent. They were vulnerable, innocent, vulnerable, Arumim, Arumim. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3, 1. It says the serpent is arum, shrewd, 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 shrewd. And so it's, you know, you're meant to make that connection between the two, between Satan's or the serpent's shrewdness and the innocence of the first humans. That essentially the craftiness of this serpent is going to focus on the innocence of the first humans. That's where he's going to attack. Now the text also adds by saying, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now you say, why is that added? Why is that significant? And it's just that the serpent was still a creature that God had made. It's not a separate entity by itself. It's not something that is greater than God or even uh, equal to God, even though it, it seems like some kind of nefarious character. No, the serpent was a creature that the Lord God himself had made. And therefore, this creature was under God and dependent on God. And it's not just that. Remember, all the creatures that God had made 
Remember, man was to exercise dominion and rule over all these creatures and animals. And remember, in chapter 2, we saw the animals came to Adam to be named. And that also showed that even the animal world was recognizing the, you know, that Adam was their ruler, was God's representative on earth, that they are willfully submitting to him. So this was God's created order, and, and there was great harmony as a result between the man and the animals as well. And the animals were happy to be under the authority of man. But in this scene, what you have is a talking serpent. A literal serpent literally talking and a woman listening to this animal. The serpent, he doesn't talk to the man who is the head of the woman. No, Satan, really, when you think of what is happening here, Satan through the serpent, he has set himself to disrupt this order that God has made. See, because now it's an animal which is meant to be right at the bottom. This animal is on top and is talking to the woman. Satan's strategy here is not just to usurp the authority of the man and in turn the, uh, pardon me, usurp the authority of the woman and in turn the authority of the man, but ultimately he wants to usurp the authority of God himself. You see, he doesn't want God's order in this world because that order reflects God's rule in this world. No, Satan wants it all for himself. He wants this world for himself. He wants to be the supreme authority in this world instead of submitting to God and his order. So that's what Satan is up to here. He's possessing an animal and he's gonna dis- he wants to disrupt that whole order. He has set himself up not just to make the man and the woman fall, he's trying to gain control over the whole world by toppling the whole order that God has made. He's really trying to get on top and become the supreme ruler. Now look at how he launches into his attack as he speaks to the woman. The second part of verse 1. It says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say? Now that little word, actually, actually say, or in some translations, really say. Did God really say? It's an expression of surprise. But as one commentator states, it's a a feigned surprise. It's, It's not a real surprise. He's just acting as though he's surprised. See, Satan is not actually surprised and he's not asking the question because he wants to find out the truth about what God has said. No, he's asking the question to cast doubt over God and his word. And here's another thing to notice. And that's Satan's use 
of the term God or Elohim. Remember the first chapter, it focused on God as Elohim, as the, as the sovereign creator who made everything. And then in chapter 2, all of chapter 2, all the references to God, uh, he's referred to as Lord God, as Yahweh Elohim. And, and, and we saw that Yahweh is basically God's personal name that he reveals to those he has an intimate relationship with. And we saw how, and therefore, all of chapter 2 focused on just that, his intimate relationship with man. And it showed how he cared for man and how he loved man and how he was in this intimate relationship with him. But now as Satan comes into the picture and asks a question, he doesn't say Yahweh Elohim. He doesn't say Lord God. He just says God. And you say, why? Well, first of all, he, has, he, has, he himself has no intimate relationship with God. In fact, he doesn't want that. He, you know, he, he hates God now. But even more than that, He's trying to blur the image of God for Eve. You know, he, he does, he's trying to get her to not see that loving, caring, intimate God that he is. And so even in addressing God, he uses the general term as though God is a distant God. Oh, just that creator God. So Satan says, did God actually say? Now there's something to be said about that as well. Because even that question is, is shocking. It is absolutely shocking. And you, and you say, why? Why is that a shocking question? See, again, in Genesis 1, if you remember, there's this constant refrain. God said, and it was so. 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 It keeps repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. And, it, and what it showed was that God's word was truthful and powerfully effectual to fulfill whatever God had said that exactly what he said would come to pass. Every blessing that Eve had been experiencing, the garden, the trees, the food, the water, the animals, her husband, even herself, everything came about as a result of God's wonderful word. And now that very same word of God is what is being questioned. That's what makes it so shocking. And by questioning God's word, Satan now is beginning to raise doubts about the truthfulness of God's word and his character. Now let's look at the specifics of this question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Do you sense something wrong there? 
Let's just refresh our memory with what God actually commanded. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. This is what God actually said, or actually commanded. Genesis 2, 16, 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. So there were two parts to God's command. On the one side, there was the abundant provision of God. Really, the command was to to enjoy it all. They could eat of every tree in the garden as many times as possible. A free buffet was available every single day, all the time. You could go as many times as you wanted. So God was exceedingly generous in that command. And in the context of that exceedingly generous command, God gave one prohibition. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That particular tree, the fruit from that tree, they were not to eat, and this was for their own good. But what does Satan do? He pushes aside the fact of God's abundant provision. And the one, provi- the one prohibition of God is brought to the forefront. In fact, really zoomed in, and then he twists it around. By asking the question, did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree? So he focuses on the prohibition and then he twists it around. Not just one tree. Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree whatsoever? I mean, think of it like this. You know, there's a, there's a boy training for some team sport. Uh, that's coming up in school. And the father comes and tells his son, son, you can go and practice your team sport every single night except Saturday night because I need you to sleep early so that we can get to church early on Sunday. Every other day, you can go and practice for that event that's coming up. But then someone else comes and asks the son, Did your father really say that you cannot go and practice with your team on any night? That's what Satan is doing. He's, and by putting in that word, did God really say that that expression of surprise, it's very subtle, you see. Because he's essentially saying, wow, I mean, did, did God really say that to you? That, that from none of the trees that you can really eat from? I mean, all these beautiful trees, what kind of God is that? Where he says you can't eat from any tree. And in this way, You know, in addition to suggesting that God's word can be questioned, Satan is distorting God's gracious character. He's distorting God's word and making God to be one who is too harsh, 
too restrictive, too stingy. You know, uh, almost like a, a, a tyrant. See, that's how the lies of Satan can be. That, uh, that's how shrewd he can be. I mean, so innocently he comes up with this, oh, oh, did God really say that? And, and through that, he attacks God. He lies and deceives to get people to doubt God and his word. You know, now at this point, Eve should not have entertained the serpent in this conversation whatsoever. She should have immediately cut it off because she knows God. She sees everything in front of her and the blessings that she has received. She knows God's word, the goodness of God's word, the goodness of God himself. But as one commentator notes, quote, this was the first time she had heard anyone doubt God. She did not know that it was an option. Really, the the first step to get someone to sin is to get them to question and doubt God and his word. Then that person is already on their way to being led astray from God and uh, into sin. Now, even though Eve does not cut the conversation short. She doesn't go away from there. But she does refute Satan and she does speak the truth. But as you observe her response, you can already begin to see how she's becoming impacted by the serpent. Look at verse 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. See, there's some clues here in her response that tells us how she has been impacted by the serpent. Well, the first clue is in the way that she also names God. She doesn't use God's personal name, that, that intimate, that shows the intimacy of God, Yahweh. Now what, what she's doing is really, she's just following the lead of Satan himself. And so even in her response, she's following the lead of Satan and she's beginning to think of God as a, as a distant, disconnected uh, God who's there as opposed to him being a caring and loving and intimate God. And you see that just in the way she's beginning to imitate Satan. Now the second thing is how she describes God's provision. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. You say, well, that sounds right, doesn't it? Well, there's one important word that she misses, and that's every. 
Or in other translations, it's even, we may freely eat of the uh, fruit of the trees in the garden. See, that's an important word, every. See, because what she's doing is she's minimizing the privileges, minimizing the, the bountiful generosity of God by just simply saying, oh, God said we can eat of the trees, as opposed to, no, you can freely eat. You can eat of every tree. And so you, you can begin to see she's beginning to lose sight of the gracious character and the goodness of God. And what is really in her forefront of her mind is the prohibition that God has placed. Really now for her, the prohibition seems much bigger to her. The goodness of God and his generous provision, it's all just more blurry. And what's front and center, total focus, is the prohibition of God. And so she even exaggerates it. Look at verse 3 again. She says, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Neither shall you touch it. See, God didn't restrict her from touching the fruit. God never said such, such a thing. This is her own addition to what God has said. So she subtracts from God's word. She adds to God's word. And you can see how she's being led astray now. One commentator writes, By this insertion, Eve betrays the course her thoughts have taken. She feels that the prohibition was unduly sharp, so unconsciously she sharpens it herself by saying, oh, God even said, don't even touch it. Because that's how prohibitive God is, because that's all she's focusing on now. And then lastly, she even minimizes the penalty. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But God actually said, you shall surely die. It was emphatic about the certainty of death if they disobeyed. But here in her statement, that penalty is quite softened. So what you see here by Eve's response is that the, the, the doubt that the serpent sowed by his questioning is beginning to take root in her mind now. Her focus is now on God's prohibition and it's exaggerated in her mind. And the bountiful provision of God and even the penalty for disobedience are all minimized in our thinking. Now we're all familiar in some sense with this kind of thinking, isn't it? I mean, take for example, perhaps it's something that you've been praying about. Maybe it's to do well in school. Maybe it's to do well in your business. Maybe, uh, you know, you have monetary needs. Maybe it's a desire for a spouse or to have a better relationship with someone. Now, whatever it may be, 
none of these things are bad in of itself. But then for whatever reason, God has either not answered that prayer as yet or he has said no. And what happens is then when we become so focused on this negative, suddenly that's front and center for us and it taints everything else around us. Everything becomes about this negative thing. And then so God suddenly becomes not as generous, even though he has blessed us in so many different ways. In fact, he begins to slowly look as though, oh, he's harsh. He doesn't have my best interests. And and so in that way, this kind of thinking about God can creep in. You see, the first step for you to be led astray from God is when you begin to doubt God and his word. But you say, well, what do I do if I'm beginning to doubt God and there are things like that in my life? Well, I would say this, don't run away from God. Don't take your eyes away from God and turn to the lies of Satan. No, be honest with God and bring your doubts back to God. God, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm having doubts with. And confess it to God. And ask God to to help you with it, to help you deal with it. Maybe it's an issue even with unbelief. And then even more than that, then stop focusing on that and remind yourself about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you on the cross. Remind yourself of his love and his mercy and his graciousness and the fact that Jesus even carried on the cross even your very doubts. And then continue to feed yourself with God's word, even when you don't feel like it. And then more than that, I would say beyond that, talk to someone within the church family. Someone who can continue to encourage you to walk in God's ways. Someone who can even continue to keep you in prayer. But as you strive, even in your doubts, to come back to God and follow his ways, I can guarantee you that God will help you through it. But Satan's tactics is always to cause us to doubt God and question God and his word. That is the first step to going away from God. And we should be mindful of that. So at this point, Satan understands by you know, looking at Eve's response, he's like, aha, she's vulnerable. And so now he moves in for the kill. He goes on to a full-blown attack against God and his word by re- really rejecting God and his word. And here we come to our second point, verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. 
It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I mean, again, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing how shrewd he is. See, Eve minimized the penalty of God by saying, lest you die. You know, yeah, you will die kind of thing. But the serpent corrects her by bringing back the same exact emphasis that God had made. That, you know, you will surely die. But he adds a word to it and twists it around. Not. Really, in the, in the Hebrew, it's not you will surely die. Clever, isn't he? And that's what he's really good at. Because there's some truth there. And sometimes even in the form of, oh, no, 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 that's not what God said. This is what he has said, but then he twists it around. See, what you have here is an outright contradiction of God's word. What Satan is essentially saying is, God is a liar. Or more specifically, he's saying, what God's word has said will not come true. Or you will not surely die if you eat the forbidden fruit like God said. He's saying, oh, don't worry about God's warnings that disobedience will result in death. It's not going to happen. See, Satan is not just content with twisting God's word. He wants to completely do away with God's authority over people's lives. You know, I find it interesting, you know, when I think of what Satan is denying specifically. He's denying the fact that God will judge sin and that there will be consequences. He says, no, it's not going to happen. And you see that lie everywhere, don't you? Let's indulge in sin. Let's go against God and his word. No, we won't surely die. It's, it's the lie that is the most prevalent in the world around us. And what we as believers are bombarded with regularly, in fact, almost every single day. And if God does forbid, the lie goes on. It's because God doesn't want what is best for you. You know, he's implying there's something really out there that's good for you. And you won't be satisfied till you get that thing. Never mind everything that God has blessed you with already right now. And so you're, you're missing out. And the only reason God doesn't want you to have that thing out there, what is really good for you, Satan says, is because God is deliberately holding back what is good for you. He doesn't have your very best interest. Look at verse 5. It says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, according to Satan, God's judgment of death for disobedience will not come to pass. 
Oh, it's just a scare tactic that, that God is using just to keep you in your place. In fact, Satan says that if you do eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So you're really missing out. You will be like God if you eat that fruit. Now I want you to just stop and think for a moment. God had already made Adam and Eve in the likeness of God. They're uniquely made in the image of God, unlike any of the animals. So there's nothing about them to be made more like God. They're already like God. They're made in His image. But here's the lure. If you eat the fruit, that's covertly saying if you disobey God, it will do you good. You will know good and evil and become like God. You know, I would say this. Even if you were to think about it logically, it doesn't make sense. See, if God created this tree, and we know that God created this tree, and, he, and he's not giving them access to this tree because it's just a scare tactic so that he can safeguard, uh, you know, God can safeguard his own high position. You say, well, if that was the reason, then God would just not create the tree in the first place. So it's not even logical. And I would say, see, that's where often when we're being led astray to sin, it's not logical. It's irrational. As we begin to believe more and more in whatever the lie is than the truth of God's word. The lure here is this. Your eyes will be opened and you will get to decide what is good and evil. You get to be like God, the sovereign one. But you know, the irony is the man and the woman were not designed to be that way. They were not designed to deal with evil by themselves. They were designed to trust in God and depend on Him and follow His ways. Because they don't know everything. They are not supreme. Only God knows and only God is supreme. So that's the appeal here that Satan is bringing. You get to decide for yourself and you get to be God. You don't have to be under God. And because you decide for yourself, whatever you want, you will be happy and satisfied. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Remember what we looked at last week about Satan and how he fell? We saw last week in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 how Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to be equal to God. Even take the place of God and not be under him. And what happened as a result? It just led to his ruin and his damnation. And so what Satan is doing, he's continuing to propagate that same lie to Eve 
and to everyone else even to this day. It's that same lie that he believed in at the first. And, and, and think about this. When you reject the authority of God and his word, when you take away that authority, then essentially God is out of the picture. Then who is in that picture? Who is the only one that remains who's supremely authoritative? It's the self, isn't it? I get to decide for myself what is best for me. I get to decide what is good and evil and live according to my ways. Now, let me emphasize this point. It is an absolute lie to think I have to be the sovereign one in my life and I have to decide for myself what is good and bad in my life and only then will I be happy and satisfied. It is the biggest lie that Satan continues to propagate. And this lie is as old as Satan himself, and it is this lie that Eve is actually falling for. That's the deception of Satan. He causes people to doubt God and his word. And once they're along that way, finally he gets them to reject God and his word. Now in closing, I, I, I just want to bring up two points and I'll end with that. Just two points for you to think through uh, as we close. And the first point is this. God's word should never be tampered with. God's word should never be tampered with. Why? Because the Bible is God's word. It is fully sufficient and authoritative and trustworthy. But when we add to God's word or take away from God's word like what Eve did, we are going outside the boundary of God's authority and God's rule and God's protection, which is actually meant to be for our good. You see, we're not created to be independent of God and his word. No, we're created to be dependent on God and live according to his word. That's what causes us to thrive and our life to continue. So when we go outside of the authority of God and his word, what happens? It leads to ruin. Because there's no truth there. There's just lies. And that's not reality. And it ultimately leads to our ruin and even death. And so what that also means is this. You and I need to be very careful to who we listen to. Whether it's teachers online, whether it's books that you read, blogs that you read, you need to be very, very careful. You need to be a Berean that whatever is said 
Even, even what I say or anyone else says from this pulpit. You need to open God's word and look very clearly if that is exactly what God is saying. That nothing of God's word is taken away and nothing of God's word is added. Because if that happens, you are being led astray outside of God's protective boundary. And it will only lead to your ruin and ultimately your destruction. So therefore, we must hold firmly to God's word and live only according to it and never tamper with God's word. The second thing that I want you to keep in mind and we'll end with this is this. God's prohibitions are always for our good. You know, this, this concept of God's prohibition uh, is always for our good. You know, I must confess that I understood this much later in my Christian life. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we all understand that God does everything for his glory. We, we all get that. But I wonder if you, like, I wonder if you understand that whatever God does for his glory is also always for the good of his people. That they're two sides of the same coin. On the one side is God's glory. On the other side is the good of God's people. See, because if we don't get this, sometimes we can wrongly think, oh yes, God does everything for his glory. But we can wrongly sometimes think, oh, that means sometimes things that are not good for me. No, 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 no. Whatever God does for his glory is always for the good of his people, period. He does not ever do anything for our ruin. Even if his prohibitions, they are for our good. See, so when we know God's word to be this way, all of God's word, all of God's design, everything that he has said, what he has said positively and what he has told us not to do, as we follow that design and pattern and everything according to God's ways, you know, it becomes very freeing. Because, hey, things, as we follow God's ways and God's design and everything that he has said, things go well with us. Because that's how God has designed it to be. And, and what that invariably then does is it causes us to trust in God more. And so then when we go through the difficult times, as we practice our minds and continue to walk this way, when we go through difficult times, we can still keep focusing on God and continue to walk in his ways. Like we don't have to then stray over sometime when things get difficult. Let me just illustrate this with an example again. Think of a, a, a father and a son. Okay, this father does only what is good for his son. So when the father then gets the son to do something difficult, 
and the son doesn't fully understand it, what is he going to go back to? He's going to go back and think, my father has always done only what is good for me. And I know whenever I've, I've obeyed him, things have gone really well for me. And now this is difficult in terms of what my father has said. And I don't fully understand it. But you know what? I know he does only good. And I know this is for my good. And therefore, I will continue to obey. You see how freeing that is? It takes away a lot of that burden of thinking, oh, God is for himself and I'm not sure if he's always for me. That we would just trust God this way and his word, every single bit of it is for our good. Now here's the implication then. That if God's glory and the good of his people are two sides of the same coin, it is not wrong for us to pursue our good so long, so long as it is according to God's ways and for his glory. But when we pursue our good without any regard for God and his glory, then we are pursuing the path of Satan. See how that works? When God is out of the picture, when there's no regard for his design, when there's no regard for his order, when there's no regard for his glory and we're just simply pursuing our good, that's the path of Satan. And yet when we recognize God's order, God's way, God's word, and we follow, say, it is for his good, but I know this will be for my good. That's a good thing. And I want you to keep this mind because when the deception of Satan comes, and it will come in different ways, and, it, and he will tempt you to doubt God and his goodness, you need to come back to these things. And only when you practice these things, when times are good, will you be able to continue on this way when things are bad. You cannot start when things are bad. So as we consider the deception of Satan, let us hold fast to God's word, not taking away from it, not adding to it, but joyfully being under it, knowing it is for our good. Knowing God is not a tyrant. Knowing God is always good and all that he does is for our good and his glory and there is no opposition there. That's the great God we serve. That's the good God we serve. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God in whom there is no evil. That you are entirely good. That you are entirely loving. That you are entirely merciful. That you are entirely a God who is just. 
And so, Father, as we know this, and as we know that your word is an extension of who you are, help us to joyfully live under your word. Not as though it's some burdensome thing, but knowing it's a wonderful thing that it is for our protection, it is for our good, it is not for our ruin. So that when the lies of Satan come, we can still stand firm on your word and resist the schemes of Satan. Father, we thank you that you have been good to us and you will be good to us and you will continue to be that way. And so help us when we go through the difficult times and the good times, remember this aspect of who you are as you lead us like a shepherd till we get to you and join you in heaven. Thank you, Father, for these truths. We pray that these truths would not simply go in one ear and go out the other, but we would hold on to these truths of what you have said because these truths are what is going to continue to help us live a good life on this earth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.